Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Matthew 26, beginning to read at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a cock crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field, as a burial place for, the, for foreigners. That is why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray as we stand? Father, as we have just sung, please teach us tonight. Please speak to us, make us wise in saving faith. Father, would you comfort us again by the truth of your gospel? Father, would you give us joy in all that we do living in light of your gospel? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, as you sit down, if you want to uh, pick up your Bibles again and turn back uh, to Matthew 26, uh, and we're going to consider uh, those uh, two incidents uh, together tonight. So in 2007, we uh, missed one of the most joyous baptisms in the world that I think there's ever been. Uh, Zoe was uh, baptized at about a week old. It was a a brilliant occasion. We wish we had been there. And even though we weren't, we could feel the joy of that occasion. If you turned up in that morning and you watched as Marty and Helen carried their baby Zoe up to the front to be baptized with with her two older sisters, you would have experienced the joy which was there. You might not have understood why it was so joyful, but you wouldn't have missed the joy that there was. Now, in fact, the, the same joy was uh, felt as Zoe was born and Marty was able to cuddle Zoe at birth. Uh, the extravagant joy was felt at her first birthday and her second and her third and her fourth birthday. Now, I'm not a big uh, sentimentalist, but I felt the joy and the happiness on those occasions. Now, looking in, you might have wondered, why were they so joyful? You know, there are baptisms and cuddles and first and second and third and fourth birthdays all the time. Uh, we've got uh, three children, uh, three boys, and we've experienced lots of those um, in the time of having them. Uh, why were these times so joyful? Uh, do you know, the, the good news sometimes is only good news when you realize the bad news in which it's set against. You see, the joy of these occasions will make sense when I tell you that we and many other people were praying that Zoe would be born alive so that Marty could cuddle her while she was still alive. She was born, she was born with a disability. It was diagnosed around 20 weeks when they realized that the skull hadn't grown over the brain. And the medical opinion at that time was unanimous. She'll either die before birth or almost immediately after birth. And so we prayed. And so can you see the joy when Zoe was born alive and Marty could have a cuddle? And how the joy was increased as she was able to come to church and be baptized amongst the community of believers there. How we rejoiced when she got to one year old and then two and three and four. It was wonderful because of the bad news in which it was set against. You see, sometimes good news can only be properly understood against the bad. And sometimes it might not seem all that good unless you understand the bad. And can I say that's the case with Christianity? The gospel is good news, really good news, because of the bad news in which it's set against. You see, we believe the gospel truth is everything because of the bad news against which it's set. Uh, you know, recently I've uh, been trying to read the Heidelberg Catechism with my oldest son. Um, and in there it asks uh, a question. It says, what must you know to live and die in the joy and comfort of the Christian gospel? And the first thing it says is necessary to know is the bad news. Now it says, I must know how great my sins and my misery are. 
You see, the good news of the gospel only makes sense against the background of the bad. What must I know to live and die in the joy and comfort of the gospel? First, how great my sins and misery are. And as we've read the Bible tonight and we've read of two failures, people who illustrate the bad news. As you read that, you didn't read this and think, here are Peter and Judas shining examples of human triumph. They don't chart humanity overcoming when all the odds are against them. Peter and Judas here are failures. Peter ends outside weeping bitterly. Judas ends up tragically hanging himself. Human failure. And Peter and Judas are the same in that regard. Both fail. And just remember that Peter and Judas were both followers of Jesus. The part of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose. Those that Jesus spent time with and taught. He'd eaten with them. I imagine he had shared a joke with them. Confided in them. Shared his desires and goals. He'd spent time with them when when he was hungry and tired. When he was refreshed and energized. Jesus had even sent them out to tell other people the good news of the gospel. They'd been given authority to do amazing miracles. Peter and Judas. And yet here they are at the end. Failures. They do it in different ways. But they both end up failing Jesus. Now look at Peter's failure Peter, the headstrong disciple who had just declared that he would never disown Jesus, who would never desert him. You see it in verse 35, back over the page. Peter had declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Now, after that, Jesus is arrested and Peter does follow Jesus right into the courtyard. He's there. And yet when a a little girl comes up and says to him, you were with Jesus of Galilee, he denies it. You see it in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And then after that, he uh, retreats away into the darkness of the the doorway. In the end, his retreat will be outside and away. But here is stage one. He he moves into the shadows. Maybe he hopes he won't be noticed in the shadows. But uh, someone comes up to him and says in in verse, verse 71, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. And then after a little while, another group comes to him and one of them says, verse 73, surely you're one of them, your accent gives it away. Must have been like trying to convince, if I was trying to convince you that um, I'm the Aussie on staff, your accent gives you away. And now Peter swears an oath and calls down curses on himself and says, I don't know the man. And be clear what he's doing here. He's not using bad language. That's not what it means when he says he is swearing an oath and cursing. Now you see the kind of thing in the Old Testament when people will say, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely if, whatever that is. 
And so you see what Peter's doing? He's saying, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely if I am lying to you. I do not know the man. Wow. At that moment, he stands self-condemned, doesn't he? And the truth comes crashing down on Peter like a ton of bricks as the rooster crows. And he remembers the words of Jesus. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter has done just that. And right at the end there, you see this proud, strong man outside weeping bitterly because he's disowned Jesus. What a failure. And you know, as you get to Judas, we have another failure. He's betrayed Jesus into the hand of the chief priests and the elders who want to kill him. He gets 30 pieces of silver for his act of betrayal. But as Jesus is condemned by them, he realizes he's betrayed an innocent man to death. And you see it in verse 3 of chapter 27. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. And you know, the chief priests and the the leaders are no help at all. They say, what's that to us? Deal with it yourself. That's your responsibility. And so still full of remorse, Judas hangs himself. Now the despair which he felt leads him to think the only way out was death. It's tragic. But you see, here are two individuals failing, those closest to Jesus failing. And as we see that, we see it's what humanity always does. Humanity always fails with regard to God. These two privileged individuals cannot do it. And it's not just Peter and Judas. If you, if you read on later, you will see that the religious leaders failed. We read that ourselves. The chief priests and the elders are seeking to kill an innocent man. If the rest of the disciples fail. They've already run away. Can you see it? Every human fails. That's the bad news. And we have to realize that we also are failures. We also are sinners. It's quite a humbling truth. And sometimes people will say that we shouldn't preach this kind of thing. Just tell people that they are okay, that they're not so bad, that God loves you and all will be well. Don't be depressing and talk about sin, we are told. Yet the Bible is quite clear. We have all sinned. There is no one righteous. The human heart is deceitful above all things. At one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, the Bible is quite clear. I am a sinner. In fact, my experience is quite clear. I am a sinner. The news is terrible. I am a sinner. I am guilty before God. But recognizing that fact is the first step to seeing the comfort and joy that you can have in life and death. And listen how Kevin DeYoung puts it. 
It says, lasting consolation can, can only come to those who know their need to be consoled. The first thing we need in order to experience the comfort of the gospel is to be made uncomfortable with our sins. The comfort of the gospel doesn't skirt around the issue of sin or ignore it like positive thinking preachers and self-help gurus. It looks at sin square in the eye, acknowledges it, and deals with it. While many people will tell us to stop focusing on sin and lighten up because we aren't bad people, the gospel tells us the opposite. In order to have comfort, we must first see our sin-induced misery. It's only when we accept the bad news that the gospel is seen to be such good news. Just step back a moment and and if you see in your Bibles there where these examples of human failure come. Did you see where they come? In chapter 26 of Matthew. These exhibits of human failure happen right at the heart of the passion story. Right at the heart of the story of Jesus' trial and then his crucifixion. Right at the heart there of all that's going on we are told that humans are failures. And is that not the best place to see it? You see, because these chapters recount the centre of our Christian faith, that on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for our sins. He pays the penalty for our rebellion against him, our failures of God, our rebellion, our sinfulness. Now, right at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Joseph is told to give Jesus the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so here we are, we see these examples of human failure and we see Jesus dying to save people who fail. Uh, You know, one of uh, my heroes of faith is a man called William Grimshaw. Uh, He was uh, the vicar in Haworth in the 1700s. In fact, he's a bit like Philip Hacking. He was born in Lancashire and ended up in Yorkshire for most of his life ministering the gospel. Uh, Unlike Philip Hacking, uh, when he became a minister, he wasn't a Christian. William Grimshaw. I don't know, he wasn't a Christian. One person describes his life at the time and then exclaims after he says, Oh, what a scandal to Christianity are, dr- are, are drunken, horse racing, gambling, and ungodly priests, and what a jest and stumbling block to the world. And so they are today, might I say. But you know, in the course of his duties, Grimshaw had to pastor a couple who had lost a child. And in that situation, he realized he had nothing that he could say to them. He didn't know what to say. He was lost. And it aroused in him a seriousness. And he tried his hardest to live a good and moral life. And do you know what he says his strictness led him to see? As he tried to live a Christian life, what he thought was a moral life, he said it led him to one conclusion, that his heart was deceitful. And desperately wicked. And you see, Grimshaw, as he tried his hardest, came to realize that he was a failure, a sinner. He realized the bad news. He was a sinner and could do nothing about it, however hard he tried. And then a few weeks or months later, he was visiting a friend. And on the coffee table, he found one of John Owen's books. It's not normal coffee table reading. But he opened the book and he read that Jesus was obedient to death. 
Jesus never sinned. And on the cross, he died for sinners. And so would he trust in Jesus to take away his sins? And he saw that he could, and he did. And he later confided to Henry Venn, another minister. He says, I was now willing to renounce every degree of fancied merit and ability and to embrace Christ only for my all in all. Oh, what light and comfort did I now enjoy in my own soul. And oh, what a taste of the pardoning love of God. His joy was unbounded after that. He knew he was a sinner, but he knew that he was loved more than he ever could have imagined. But can you see, his only, the only way that joy could have come was when he realized the depths of his sinfulness. And we could do well to remember that we do people no good if we minimize this. And if we try to make it seem less so. It might seem tender-hearted at first or kind. Caring for people, encouraging them, not wanting to push them down. It may even cover up the most obvious symptoms of their distress. But one writer says that that approach, in the end turns out to be a monster it might make people feel better but it leaves them captive to their instinctive desires in despair and under curse you see if we tell people where to that they're bad we show them the gospel it is wonderful you know peter and judith are both the same they're both failures we're all like that and yet their responses are very different aren't they Did you see the difference between Peter and Judas? And Judas, uh, he sees that he's a failure and tragically he tries to deal with it himself. It leads him to take the only option that he could see. He kills himself. It's tragic. So gripped with his sin, he tries to pay for it himself. Now John Calvin writes about people like that. He says, Scripture represents some people as acknowledging the gravity of their sin. But since they conceived of God only as avenger and judge, the very thought overwhelmed them. It's quite a startling quote, isn't it? A sense of guilt like that is just awful. To think that you're only under the judgment of God is a terrible thing. And if you're not a Christian here tonight... And if you've understood what we're saying, to see that you're a failure before God, if all you hear is that you're under the judgment of God, we have done you a great disservice. So please keep listening. You see, Judas tragically responds. But you see, on the other hand, Peter's wonderful testimony. You see, we left Peter at the end of chapter 26 outside weeping bitterly. He recognizes what he's done and is distraught. Yeah, he doesn't kill kill himself. In fact, the next time we hear of him is in chapter 28. If If you flick over, we hear of him, well, we kind of obliquely hear of him right at the end of the gospel. In Matthew 28 and verse 16. After Jesus has died and been raised to life, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Did you see that? The 11 
disciples go there. The 11 disciples, including Peter. Peter, the one who has spectacularly failed, is back. He is here. He worships Jesus after his death and resurrection. I wonder whether he was one of those doubting. You could understand it, couldn't you? If I was Peter and I was there standing before Jesus, will he have me back? Is it going to be okay? Well, remember the whole point of these chapters. Jesus goes alone to the cross to save sinners. And so here, Peter comes and finds that his sins can be forgiven. He sees the mercy of God shown for him. And we can be shown the mercy of God because of Jesus. And we can be sure that God is merciful, merciful to us. And that's what Peter wonderfully experiences, the mercy of God. He is restored by Jesus. He's brought back into relationship with Jesus. He finds that mercy there, and then he goes on to serve Jesus from there as part of his people. And it seems to me that Peter here is entirely passive. He does nothing. And again, that's the gospel. We are sinners incapable of saving ourselves. But Jesus has saved me. And he's done the work. You know, Christianity is not so much about me following Jesus. It's a declaration of what he has done for me. And I follow after him if I, when I know that. We saw it last week as the, the baptism pool was here and we saw person after person baptized. The, the symbolic picture of washing away of sins. And as they stood there in that pool, what did they have to do? They just had to stand there, did they not? While someone else put them into the water and raised them up. Again, what a picture of our gospel. The gospel which says, God saves me. Not because of anything I have done. Hallelujah, what a saviour we have. Jerokesia summed it up brilliantly last week. She wrote in her testimony this. God has been the most amazing friend I could ever have. Even when I fail or mess up, I know he still remains faithful. In fact, it was whilst I was still far away from God that he chose to die for me. Christianity is not about what I have done in the past or even what I can do in the future, but about what God in his great love has already done for me. You see, Jesus predicted Peter's failure. He knew he would fail. And he went to the cross He knew his disciples would desert him, but he went to the cross. He knew that we were sinners, but he went to the cross. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, as I draw to a close, let me just draw out one more implication for us. Earlier in the gospel, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you know, when you are humbled as you realize your sin, you, are, you see the kingdom of God. When you mourn over this, your sin, you are comforted. You see, we should think less of ourselves. But we should see that we are wonderfully loved by God. You see, we should be those who are humble, admitting our sins and finding the restoration that comes from the gospel. I guess one of our problems is we don't like admitting that we're wrong. 
You know, when I used to work as a physio, I would see it all the time. Things would be done wrong, but nobody would want to admit that they were done wrong. Because if, if you admit that they were done wrong, there would be consequences which would come from that. You, well, sometimes you admitted things because you knew they would be found out. Yet other times you wouldn't want to admit them because then you'd have to deal with the consequences. And if we do that with our sin, we are in terrible grounds. We don't like to admit it, don't we? And you see the difficulty. We don't want to admit that we ever do anything wrong. You see it when you write, do you do this when you write application forms? You have to write down what your weaknesses are. And so you say, I work too hard and sometimes I need to be told to work less. Or I care too much for our clients and so sometimes I work at weekends just so that they can feel special. That's the weaknesses we like to express, the ones which show that actually we're really quite good. But can you see what the gospel does? It humbles us. It makes us poor in spirit. You know, a couple of years ago, I spent uh, some time with a, a girl who had failed big time. Uh, she had failed and everybody knew about it. Well, she thought everybody knew about it. Uh, not everybody did, but that's what it felt like. Uh, she'd never failed in anything before in uh, GCSEs or A-levels. Uh, she'd got a good degree she was stuck in at church and involved in so many different ways. And then she failed. And everybody could see, lots of people could see that that's what happened. And one of the hardest things that she had time coping with was the fact that it was public. That people knew. And yet it was actually really good for her in the end. Because she came to grasp the truth of the gospel afresh that God loves sinners and restores them and brings them back. She was amazed again by the truth of this wonderful gospel. And yet I think sometimes we come to church, do we not, thinking that we need to show that we've got it all sorted. We don't want to admit that we are sinners in need of the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. And so we try to look like we've got it sorted. So when you're struggling in whatever way it is, you don't want to admit that. If you're struggling in your marriage, you don't admit that because I'm not the kind of person that would do that. When you're addicted to pornography, you don't want to tell anybody because I'm not that kind of person. Whatever area of sin it is in life, we don't want to admit to anybody because, well, we're not like that. We're better than that. But does not Peter and Judas show that we're not all, we are all like that. We all do fail. We all need help. Now, can I encourage you maybe to do something you've never done before? Maybe say with a Christian friend, I'm struggling in this area. I'm a sinner in need of help. Now, we share our joys, but do we also share our struggles with each other? not an easy thing to do it's a hard thing to do because you have to admit that you're not perfect but it'd be a wonderful thing to do it'd be a humbling thing to do and those who are humbled are blessed by God and if someone does come to you and says I do sin in that don't just say oh no it's all right you're you're not a bad person really or don't say oh no that's okay because I do it too Don't minimize it. Show them and point them to the place where forgiveness can be found again. Point them to our wonderful Lord Jesus. To the Lord Jesus who loves them and accepts them and forgives them. 
And then together work out how you're going to live in the light of that. And when you fail again, you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me again. I was speaking to somebody this morning and she was saying that's what she does every day now. She prays in the morning, Lord, give me strength to be glorifying to you and to do what I should be for you. And every night she comes back and prays, Lord, I'm sorry that I failed again. Please help me when I wake up in the morning. It's the wonderful truth of the gospel, isn't it? Well, tonight, see the glory of the gospel. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Shall we pray together? Father God, we thank you for the gospel which shows us what we're truly like. Father, I thank you that you don't skirt around our sin, but that you have come and dealt with it in the most effective way. That you dealt with it through the death of your son. Father, we admit that we need your mercy. And Father, we thank you and praise you that you sent Jesus to die for us. I thank you that he died so that we can know your mercy. And Father, would you help us to live in the light of the cross? Would you humble us to trust you? And Father, help us to um, be those who are helping each other to grow in godliness and to point each other to the cross of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.